Those who are familiar with the story of Trident Seafoods recognize Chuck Bundren, Mike Jacobson, and Corey Ness as the three founding partners of the company. For all practical purposes, as well as simplicity's sake, that is the story. But today, we'll gain some insight into exactly how and when the three got together to become exclusive partners in Trident. Listen in as John Van Am reads Horse Trading, playing the percentages. Chapter 4. Horse Trading, Playing the Percentages Located about 1,200 miles southwest of Anchorage and 450 miles west of Dutch Harbor on the Aleutian Chain is the remote island of Adak. Though it was frequented by Aleut Native American hunters prior to the 20th century, its first permanent structures weren't built until 1942, when the U.S. military constructed an airbase there to counter the Japanese occupation of Kiska. In response to Soviet threats, ADAC was formally commissioned as a U.S. naval airbase in December 1962 and played a major part in Cold War anti-submarine exercises until it was decommissioned in 1997. As a result of the military buildup, the island has two long runways, and for decades, its facilities provided shelter, fuel, supplies, and air transportation to the commercial fishing fleet working out west. It was there at ADAC that Chuck Bundrant got his first fishing job busting freezers aboard the crab processor Mercator. And it was not far from there in 1969 when he took a busting of his own aboard the crabber Tagetic. I built the Tagetic in 1967, Chuck Bundrant recalled. And I remember pulling into Kodiak after coming out of the Bering Sea, arriving on April 8, 1968. I was loaded down with ice so heavy that it took me several days to clear the boat. The reason I remember the exact date is that I was crossing Unimac Bight when I received a call on the radio that Jill, my first daughter, had been born. It was a very happy day, but at the time I was deeply concerned that I wouldn't make it back to see her, as another boat had just gone down in the Chignik area, capsized with too much ice. Had Bundrant still been fishing aboard his first boat, the Addington, he might never have met his new daughter. As Al Birch recalled, the Addington was a small boat doing Dungeness out of Kodiak, but it was kind of marginal. Chuck did real good with it, but the Addington just wouldn't carry enough pots. He got in some dangerous situations traveling with too much gear. The boat wasn't up to the task at all. We got a saying up here about boat tonnage and skipper tonnage. You know what the tonnage of the boat is. Say it's a 100-ton boat. If you put a 50-ton skipper on it, that's all he's ever going to do. But if you put a 150-ton skipper on it, he'll definitely try and make that boat pack it. Chuck was a 150-ton skipper on a 100-ton boat. Pushing the limits had rewards as well as risks. Back in those days, Bennett recalled, it wasn't unheard of to be able to pay a vessel off in one year. The day I received the loan approval for the Addington, I paid it off. Doug Nelson, Chuck's brother-in-law, knew the Addington too. Prior to meeting Bundrant and 
according Bundren's sister, Linda, Nelson was living in Kodiak too, fishing for shrimp and crab aboard the Robbie, a 72-foot sardine saner that had been converted for dragging and pot fishing. As a young man, Nelson had an eye for boats and machinery, and there was plenty of it to ponder on Kodiak waterfront at the time. The 64 earthquake had decimated the hometown fleet, but the crab and shrimp were still out there, and enterprising fishermen were doing whatever they could to carry on, patching old boats back together and adapting others to new tasks. Everything in those days, halibut schooners that were crabbing or virtually any boat that came along that could be tanked was tanked. It was either crabbing or doing a combination of things, including some salmon, some king crab, or some Dungeness, or shrimp, Nelson recalled. At the time, a good market for shrimp was three and three-quarter cents a pound. A good market for king crab was 10 cents a pound. But crab prices were beginning to run up. The Addington was a dated boat, Nelson said. It had a narrow beam and was limited in what it could carry for pots. Basically, it could make a living for an individual, but it's my opinion that Chuck really blossomed as a fisherman when Art Paris offered him an opportunity to run the Nunavak, an 86-foot wooden power scow. I was there, and it's my understanding that Chuck took both crews aboard and used the gear off both the boats. He was pot-fishing Dungeness off the south end of Kodiak, on the outside making sets where others weren't fishing, near Tagetic Island. In an intensive five-week period, he made about $50,000, which was an incredible amount of money in those days. The good Lord smiled on him and loaded him up, so he was doing some fast laps with some incredible catches, running two crews and two sets of gear off a considerably larger boat. That's when he decided to go to Seattle and acquire another boat, which turned out to be the Tagetic. Known in the fleet as steel power scows, the Tagetic and its sisters were house-aft crab boats designed by noted Seattle naval architect Ben Jensen. The steel hulls were built at Floor Metal Fabricators on the Seattle Ship Canal and towed to Pacific Fisherman Shipyard for installation of the wooden houses and final outfitting. Nine of them were built, the Sea Urn, Viking Queen, Amatuli, Texedni, Tagetic, Dauntless, Tejean, Valiant, and Tempest. The boats were nearly 92 feet long with twin screws and beams of 26 feet. They could carry 10,000 gallons of fuel and had a hold capacity of more than 3,200 cubic feet. The house aft design provided a more comfortable ride for the crew in heavy weather, and the skipper could keep a sharp eye on the forward deck as he eased up to the next buoy. Designed for safety and success, the boats didn't escape Bunnert's notice. Bart Eaton was fishing a vessel of the same design as the yet-to-be-built Tagetic, and Bunnert recognized it as a boat that could do the job and make money. As it turned out, Bunnert's new boat brought good luck for Doug Nelson, too. The Tagetic came in one night and tied out board of us, Nelson recalled. Shortly after that, I met Chuck's sister, Linda, who had come up with his wife, Mary, from Evansville, Indiana. Linda had come to assist with baby Jill, and she was watching over Joe as well. He was about two years old at the time, so this would be around 1968. 
They were living out at Island Lake, about two and a half miles out of Kodiak. They had a trailer, and Linda moved in with them. She'd come up for a week or so to get Mary settled with Jill and Joe while Chuck fished the new boat. After that, Linda thought it would be prudent to stay a little longer. As Linda recalled with a laugh, Dad always wanted me to be a winner, and he claimed that he sent me up there because I couldn't find a man in college in Indiana. Being a good brother, Charlie introduced me to all the single men, and there were a lot of them. The one who caught her eye permanently was Doug Nelson. The first challenge for Linda was to learn the waterfront dress code. I went to Alaska in a little green suit with heels and a cute little purse, she recalled. Then I walked down a gangplank and fell on my face on the float. That was the last time I wore a dress in Kodiak, she laughed. But it didn't take her long to pick herself up and settle in. Chuck knew a lot of processes, of course, and I did a lot of work for Dick Brown at Pacific Pearl. When I went in to see him about a job, I didn't even get to go back home. He just gave me his boots, and I went right to work on the processing line. She'd come up on a spring break from college, but she stayed about eight months, and contrary to Chuck's suggestion, Nelson grinned, we continued to date and became engaged. She went back home in November. I sold my property in Kodiak, followed her back, and we got married. Why didn't Nelson keep fishing when there were fortunes to be made on the water? I guess you could say I was never a passionate fisherman, Nelson said. I was a passionate machinery guy. And while I like to sail, I fall in love with the assets. I'm a machinery guy. I'm not the guy who has to bring in the last fish in the ocean over the side. And fishing wasn't really compatible with what I wanted to do, particularly when you consider how much you're gone from home. So when I got to Seattle after marrying at the end of March, I went to work for NC Machinery, a Caterpillar dealer, and spent the next 17 years with them. By 1985, Trident Seafoods was picking up plants and equipment at a rapidly accelerating pace. And it was clear to both Bundren and Nelson that the company needed an experienced, passionate wrench head to assess the acquisitions, get them up and running in a hurry, and keep them percolating. Nelson was just the man for the job and he's been doing it ever since. Bundrant preferred to be at sea. One particular day at sea aboard the Tugitic in 1969 put Bundrant and his new crabber to the ultimate test. Petrol Bank is a shallow area that sits at the foot of a long sweeping hook of underwater mountains known as Bowers Ridge. Located about 160 miles west of Adak, Petrol Bank was one of Bundrant's favorite spots to fish king crab. Like a lot of places in Alaska, it's a long way from anywhere, especially when it's snowing and blowing and there's nobody else around. We were coming in off Petrol Bank after about nine or ten days fishing king crab, Bundrant recalled. I had a full load and started toward Adak to deliver. I'd been up for about two days before I called the mate up to drive the boat. He was a Norwegian guy who'd been the youngest coast pilot in Norway. Helge Snortland was his name, and he was a pretty good seaman. So when I laid down, I had her going about half speed into a big easterly. There was not very much wind, 
but there was a big swell. Bundren had retired to his cabin, which, like many captains' quarters, was located directly behind the pilot house and close to the action. Inside the small stateroom was a desk, a bunk, and a big reclining chair. Bundren often napped in the recliner for short periods, but the boat was full of crab and headed for port and he was dog-tired. So this time, he hit the bunk and hit it hard. Running at about four knots per hour, it was going to be a long nap and a good chance for Bundren to bank some sleep. Maybe the helmsman was anxious to get back to port and grab some shut-eye too, and perhaps he pushed the throttles just a bit too far forward as the bow of the Tergitic worked to lift itself over the oncoming swells. I don't know whether he bumped her up or what, Bunnett recalled, but the next thing I knew, the whole damn pilot house was filled up with water, and I had to swim out of the bunk. When this wave hit, the mast up forward split the wave in two, and it hit the pilot house. It took everything on both sides of the center line, all of the windows except the one in the middle. All of the electronics went out. I had a magnetic compass up there too, but the compass was laying over on its side. There was only one thing that worked on the boat, a single sideband radio. I just put it up the trip before, and I had it attached to the overhead above the chair in my stateroom. The guy at the helm was yelling, we're going down, we're going down. I said, bullshit, and I ran over and grabbed the wheel and took the throttles. I kicked her hard over, and she just hung there and shuddered until finally we started to get around and I could put a little coal to her, and she started lifting up. I tell you, that'll scare the shit out of a guy. I opened up the doors and a lot of the water went out. Of course, it went down the steps into the engine room, too. The boat was all the way down underneath the water. The whole damn deck was filled up. Fortunately for me, I was always one of those guys who dogged the doors down, and I teach that to the crew. Dog the doors down, especially up in the forepeak area. It's a good thing they did, otherwise we would have sunk. We had some plywood up in the forepeak, so the guys cut windows out of the plywood and bolted them all up. I tried to get on the radio to call somebody, but there were only two or three guys fishing who had those size bands in those days. One of them was the guy on the Dauntless, and he was fishing out of Sand Point at the time, and he was talking on the radio to the cannery. He talked and talked and talked. I didn't think he'd ever get off the radio. I kept trying to butt in, but he was one of those Norwegians, and he wouldn't get off. He was a nice enough guy, but he liked to talk too much. Finally, I said, hey, do me a favor and call the Coast Guard and ADAC. Tell them I knocked out my windows and I'm trying to make it in and see if you can get somebody to come out and get me. The only guy who would come out was Tommy Fox. He had the Kodiak Queen and he was a good Kodiak boy. The Coast Guard wouldn't even come out. They said it was too damn rough. So Tommy came out. We were right where I said I'd be. We were jogging to the east and I kept praying that the wind wouldn't change because all I could do was go right into the wind since I didn't have a compass or pedometer or anything. Not a damn thing to go by. Fortunately, all I lost was the electronic gear and I was glad I had hydraulic steering. Every once in a while we'd have an electrical fire because everything was all wet 
It was snowing like hell and blowing in so hard you couldn't see your hand in front of your face. We kept having to break ice off that one window, but I estimated my speed at about two or three knots, and when Tommy came out, I was right where I said I'd be, and he led me into ADAC. Mike Jacobson, my future partner, was working for Vita Seafoods in ADAC at the time. He told me who to talk to and helped me gather the people and materials we needed to get back on the water. We flew an electronics technician up from Lundy Electric, got everything wired back together, and kept fishing. Helgi, the guy at the helm, figured it was time to leave. Everyone else stayed and we kept fishing until the end of the season. The incident off ADAC was a memorable interruption to the king crab season. It didn't scare Bundren off the water, but it did play a part in his decision to take stock of his situation as a husband and father. Commercial fishing is an intensely focused, full-time hunt in the wilderness of the ocean. The thrill of the chase opens the valve to something primal in men, and the rush of adrenaline that pours forth is addictive. Yesterday's greenhorn becomes a 24-7 predator. The game is totally absorbing and intensely competitive. Soon it's not a game anymore. How many fish? How many pounds? How many trips? How many hours without sleep? Does fishing itself cause the condition? Or does the seed lie dormant in men until the first whiff of ocean air or taste of salt in the spray off the bow? Had Bundrant driven himself into a trap in that 53 Ford wagon? Or had he been following the scent of something he had yet to fully understand? I sold the Tequitic in 1969 and went back to Tennessee to look around and see about a career in farming, Bundrant recalled. By that time, my second daughter, Julie, had been born, and my wife, Mary, told me, it's either me or the boat. And I sold the boat real quick. My dad had been forced into early retirement. He didn't really want to do that. He'd have preferred to keep working for General Foods, but he'd had an automobile accident. He was crippled up. So he took over my mother's farm in Tennessee and started cleaning it up. Of course, that was somewhat of a dream that I'd had myself. I always wanted to be a farmer. So I went back and started studying to see if I could buy a farm and make a living. I made some money when I sold the Tagetic, and I had enough money to buy an 800 or 900 acre farm and pay cash for it. My dad said, I've been back here farming long enough to know we better take an inventory. We better talk to Mr. Bell. Mr. Bell had a farm right across the river, and it was the same amount of acreage I was looking at. When we got there, he was pitching hay over his fence to his cows. My dad introduced me to Mr. Bell and said, my son's thinking about buying a farm across the river there. What do you think about it? He said, oh, that'd be good. That'd be good having him for a neighbor. It's a good farm. I said, well, Mr. Bell, I'm not too interested in making a lot of money, but I've got three kids here. Can you tell me a little bit about the economics? If I have no debt on this farm, can I make a living? Oh yeah, he says. I raised three kids here and one of them went to college. I said, can you be a little more specific about how much you grossed and were bringing in? He said, I netted about $600 last year. I didn't even have to take the pen out of my pocket. 
$600 could get me about two crab pots. And I said, are you sure? And he said, yep. You want to see my income tax? Man, that took the wind right out of my sails. My dad said, son, as much as I'd love to have you back here, you can do a lot better on the West Coast. That was the end of Chuck's dream to be a farmer. And as it turned out, it was the beginning of Trident Seafoods. When I landed back on the West Coast, Bundit recalled, I got a call from a banker named Jack Horn, who was at Rainer Bank at the time. He said, have your ears been burning, Chuck? Bob Gilman and Mike Jacobson want to talk to you. If you play your cards right, whatever you ask them, they'll pay you. I'd first met Mike Jacobson back in 1968 when I had the Tagita. He was involved with Vita Seafoods and ADAC when I busted out the pilot house windows. He helped me get patched up and back on the water. I didn't even ask him what they'd pay me. They wanted me to run the Viceroy. I said I'd take the job. By then, I'd been about three months without work, and that just about drove me nuts. So I took the first job that seemed solvent, and that's where I really got to know Mike. Mike had been working there a lot of years, and as it turned out, he wanted to train me to take his place. It wasn't long before I got my skipper's license, took command of the Viceroy, and sailed it across the Gulf. That's where I met Dick Pace. He knew all about crab processing because he'd been working for Wakefield before Vida hired him. I knew about fishing, but not much about processing. A lot of it's just common sense. You've got to get as much product as you can per day and take care of the quality. Pace and I never hit it off very well, but Mike and I did. Mike taught me a lot about life in general. Some of the stories I can't tell you but one I can was when he was going to take me up to the Yukon and Kuskokwim to teach me all about salmon processing. They were packing salmon and tierces in those days, salting fillets in those big wooden barrels for the smokers. We were getting ready to go to the airport that morning. He came in with a suit and tie on, and I'm dressed like I'm ready to go to Alaska. I said, you ready to go? He said, yeah. I said, where's your bag? He said, I'll tell you about it when we get to the airport. Mike never had any intention of making that trip to Alaska. We get to the airport, and he introduces me to this guy named Roscoe. Son, here's the man that's going to Alaska with you. Roscoe was a native guy out of Bellingham. Well, it turned out to be quite an experience. I think we put up a thousand tears, and each of those barrels held about a thousand pounds of salted king salmon, I never worked so hard in my life. By the time we got back down to Seattle, Vita Foods had been purchased by Brown and Williamson Tobacco Corporation. And all of a sudden, instead of being part of a team, you were just a number. That's what you felt like. Mike had retired, and I wasn't very happy about the situation. I knew I could catch crab, so I decided I was going to combine my expertise from fishing and a couple of years of processing to catch and process crab on the same boat. Most readers familiar with Trident Seafoods know the story about Chuck Bundrant, Mike Jacobson, and Corey Ness being the three founding partners of the company. For all practical purposes and for simplicity's sake, that is the story. Exactly how and when the three got together to become exclusive partners in Trident is another story one that involves the Gilman brothers 
Aaron and Bob, who are lifelong business partners in Vita Foods, as well as Intersea and Unisea. Their fortunes were built on Alaska crab, and they were successful and shrewd. Chuck is working for them at Vita when Corey Ness approached him about investing in a new crabber he wanted to build, the Royal Viking. Chuck was well aware of Ness because they'd both fished king crab out of ADAC. Ness had a reputation as a top-notch crabber, and Bundren jumped at the chance to partner up with a winner. But the Gilmans were also familiar with Corey's reputation, and they could smell success too. Corey had come to me when I was at Vida and said, Chuck, I've got $40,000, and I'd like to build a crab boat. I need another $60,000. Corey's plan was for a 60-40 split. I'd have 60%, and he'd have 40 I had the money in the bank from the sale of the Tagetic. Since I was working for Vida, I figured I'd better ask Bob Gilman if it was okay to do that. He said, I don't see a problem with that. Why don't you just take 30 and I'll take 30 and we'll let Corey have 40. It didn't make me too happy, but I thought, well, I'll give a little bit because of what Jack Horn, the banker, had told me. You treat Gilman right and he'll cut you in on some good deals. I agreed to do it and went back off sailing to Alaska. But by the time I came back, I discovered I've only got 17%. While I was gone, Gimlin had cut his brother in and another guy named Jim Tate. I was really unhappy then. Corey had maintained his 40%, but all I had now was 17%. It really made me unhappy. So by the time I got the Billiken idea, I figured I'd take my ducks and start my own operation. I went to the bank, and the bank laughed at me. They said I didn't have enough capital to do this myself and suggested that Mike might want to invest. But Mike didn't have much capital, and the Gilmans had lots of capital. I think I put down $80,000. That's all I had left in cash, Bundert recalled. The Gilmans put up a couple hundred thousand. But between Mike and me and Corey... We had 50%, and the Gilmans had 25% each. Those were the original stockholders of Trident Seafoods. The Gilmans were supposed to quit Vida and start marketing the product, and Mike was just going to be the office manager. I took the Billiken to Alaska the first time, weathered the strike, and did all right. In those days, the crab fishermen would strike just about every year. The second time I went up, the Gilmans had bought Unisee, and formed another corporation. Gilman was doing this on the sly. He had the stock issued in his wife's name because he was in danger of violating his non-compete clause with Vida already. Well, Mike found that out and we had a meeting with the Gilmans the next Sunday morning. Mike says, you guys know how to market product, but you're not going to have any say in this company. Chuck and I have 50%. And you guys are out as far as the management of this company and the sales are concerned. You can't represent two competing companies. Gilman denied it. He said, we're not involved with Unisey. Mike really lost his temper then. He said, yeah, but you're sleeping with the chairman of the board. The conflict didn't sit very well with me. And I went to the bank and said, we've got to get these guys out. And the bank laughed at me again and said, you don't have enough capital. My own accountant told me to leave the Gilmans in. Chucky said, you don't have the money if Gilman says it isn't going to work. 
I went to the Gilmans and said, Fellas, I'd like to buy you out, but you need to give me a year to do it. Bob said, I'll give you one year to buy it. I asked what he was asking for their share of the company. He wanted $600,000, three times more than what they'd invested, and he wanted it in one year. He said, if you can't do it by the end of the year, you still owe us $100,000, and we've still got 50%. That was the deal. Mike Jacobson said, you're crazy. Don't do that, Chuck. The bank said, you're crazy. My accountant said, I was crazy. When I took off out of Seattle, I'd made my mind up I was going to get those guys out of Trident Seafoods. I think we grossed a million dollars that year. I made enough to pay the Gilmans off and get controlling interest in the boat. Just Mike and me and Corey. And I was off to the races after that. for listening to chapter four horse trading don't forget to subscribe so you can be the first to know when our next episode life aboard the billikin the art of blowing knuckles is released on wednesday december 18th we appreciate you joining us and we hope that this adventure inspires you to catch your own deck load of dreams <laughs>